Dear God, what is that? It's an agency, but what kind of agency? A kind of agency that can do anything from 3D design to graphic design to UI UX design to industrial design and prototyping and web building and e-commerce and social media management and video and 2D video and every single thing that is needed for a brand to grow in the digital age. Well, what could such an agency be called? How about Aloha.agency, A-L-O-A.agency, the great powerhouse agency of our time. If you have a brand or you know somebody who does, who needs to grow and is trying to make a positive impact on the world, check out Aloha.agency, that's A-L-O-A.agency. Hi, my name is Salman Farid and I beat the often path by making robots useful for the world. All right, well, joining us right now here, everybody, is Saman Farid, the CEO and founder of Formic Technologies, a company at the forefront of revolutionizing automation and manufacturing with a passionate commitment to boosting productivity in U.S. industries. His company, Formic, specializes in offering cutting-edge robotic solutions that elegantly simplify automation. These versatile robots not only streamline the packing and palletizing processes, but also contribute to the production of a diverse range of products from delightful chocolate chip cookies to specialty chemicals. Saman's journey in the tech and robotics realm is marked by significant achievements, including founding Comet Labs, an AI-focused investment fund and incubator. He also ran the global investment fund at Baidu Ventures, focusing on AI, machine learning, and its effects on the way we work and live. His expertise and enthusiasm for technology have led him to invest in and guide over 25 businesses in robotics, AI, and technology. Beyond his professional endeavors, Saman is deeply invested in youth empowerment and actively supports technology education through local nonprofits. So I'm super jazzed about this conversation. Conversation. So joining us right now is Salman Farid. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. So needless to say, you've done quite a bit in your journey. I, I'm so honored to have you here. It's just a deeply, deeply humbling to, to sit and get a chance to talk with you about some of these topics that are affecting our world so much right now, the really hot-button topics. You've been at this forever. So where should we jump in? Should we jump into the current venture and automation? Or You obviously have a very unique way of seeing the world. How do we get into your story? No, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's an honor to be here. You know, you've got a lot of wonderful guests uh, on this podcast. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, obviously I'm most passionate right now about the, the thing I'm working on right now. Of course. Uh, but um, uh, you know, I, I think it's all all interrelated. Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, uh, it's always one of those things where you can't. Uh, I, I forgot who said it. I, I'm copying this from somewhere, but I can't remember who. But you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can kind of easily connect the dots when you're looking backward. Oh man, Steve Jobs. Who there, else? There we go. We're in there the Bay Area right now. Uh, That's probably on a statue somewhere near your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very likely. Very likely. But uh, it feels like a lot of the things I did so far accumulated in uh, in kind of you know where I am and what I'm doing today. Uh, even though at the time, a, a lot of those things that I did, I was like, why the hell am I doing this? Or it doesn't really make sense. Or uh, I don't see how this is ever going to contribute to kind of the things I want to do in the long run. Yeah. Uh, and it's so wonderful to look back and see how each of those dots somehow connected. And from my perspective, they connect in a very logical way. And that's one of the beauties of doing research. I mean, I knew something about you before I dug in, but then learning more, uh, you find what appears to be a very logical pattern of discovery and of building things. And of course, your fascination with AI, automation, these are the issues of our time. And one of the interesting things that I saw, so, you know, as a child, um, you developed a fascination with robotics, but you realized that this was the future. And this is a part that I find so fascinating about builders and entrepreneurs in general. And then you decided that it should be your mission to accelerate 
that change to what you perceived to be an inevitable future. So what is the impulse to accelerate a change that one already believes is, let's say, destined to happen anyways? It just wasn't happening fast enough. Uh, okay. I think, um, you know, when you when you imagine what the future could be like, uh, when you imagine how uh, uh, the future of work would look, um, and then you go into all these factories or, where we go often uh, for, my, for my work now, and you see people, you know, spending 12 hours a day doing really, really kind of backbreaking, painful and rudimentary, you know, work. Um, you know, I think the inevitable conclusion is like, you know, humans can do so much more. Uh, there's so much potential, there's so much capacity and capability. And, um, you know, I remember uh, vividly a few, few months ago, uh, we have a customer that bottles, you know, uh, shampoo and lotion and things like that. And you go on this line and there's 40 people standing in a row, you know, just screwing the caps on yeah. all day. And yeah. you know, they would do a few caps and they would shake their hand because it's so painful and they do a few more. And, and yeah. you know, 30 people doing that all day, every day. Uh, you just have to imagine that those people are capable of doing much, much more uh, interesting work. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, when I see those kinds of, of scenarios and situations, and then on the other side, you know, when you go and you see, uh, you, you, go to, you go to the store, you go to, uh, you know, build something for your house and you fix something and you always think like this, this shouldn't cost this much, right? Mm -hmm. Like why, why are these things all so expensive? Why is life getting so expensive for everybody? The, the, the natural conclusion is like, we can't make things uh, effectively anymore. Yeah. Uh, and we can't make things for cheap enough that they become widely available. And so... Uh, because there's this shortage of resources, uh, then all the resources accumulate in, in the hands of the few, the people who can afford it. Uh, and so for the majority of humanity, uh, there's still uh, uh, not, definitely not, you know, the term abundance definitely doesn't apply, but even uh, like sufficiency is, is, is yeah. barely applicable, right? Like, and so, uh, so many people don't have enough uh, and and it's for the simple reason that we just can't produce enough for, for cheap enough. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that's a very kind of propelling mission for me and something that we want to figure out how to solve. That makes a perfect sense. And what I love about this topic and really what I wanted to talk with you about is this dichotomy of potential futures. I think each one of us at this moment in time, maybe more so than in recent memory, we see two paths diverging. We see a utopian future where all of these amazing things happen and we see a dystopian future where nobody can find a job and nobody has meaningful work and all of that and AI takes our job. They took our jobs from South Park if you ever watched that show. Um, and we also see a sort of dichotomy between things are getting more expensive and therefore we need to make things cheaper, but also I am earning less and I, my ability to earn money is going down. So how do you see that for the average person and also for the people who think that maybe working in a factory is the only job that they could get or who don't consider themselves to be highly skilled laborers. Yeah, you know, I think that that's easy, you know, uh, I, I, I hate to say it's easy, but but yeah. any uh, evidence proves that it's easy uh, okay. because, you know, we've we've put robots into 50 or 60 factories so far. Uh, and all, not a single one of them has fired, you know, anybody because, uh, of, of putting robots in what happens when, and, and there's so much data and, and history to prove this, that when robots are put into a business and they become more productive and more profitable, uh, 
you know, these bit, the owners of these businesses, the owners of these factories, the managers of these factories have a hundred ideas for additional things that they would do. Mm-hmm. If you go to any business owner or any factory owner and you said, you know, tomorrow, you know, I can give you a, a thousand extra people to work for, you know, like what would you do? Nobody would say, okay, you know, I'd, I'd fire everybody that I have. Like they would have a hundred more things that they would want to do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, each of these businesses, you know, once they get some automation, they free up some of the people from the most painful, difficult, dirty, dangerous tasks. Uh, they then put the, put those people into other 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 functions, right? And and these businesses start to grow, uh, and they're finally competitive and profitable, right? Like I'm sure you know this, but American factories are are globally very uncompetitive, right? Uh, and so um, the only products that are made in America are the products people are willing to pay a big premium for. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, and so small list. It's a very small list. Yeah. And uh, uh, the way that we the way that we combat that is we have to make American factories competitive globally. Uh, and 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 the only path there is you know much much more labor. Uh, the typical factory uh, that we work with, you know, they have a twenty to thirty percent per month headcount turnover. Uh, meaning Dang, you know, they're hiring know for each role three times a year. Wow. <laughs> Two or three times a year. Right. So it's, because it's uh, so backbreaking and so arduous. It's backbreaking. It's painful. And, you know, because they're paying so little, you know, like there's much better jobs for folks, right? If you're going to get mm. paid 15 or $20 an hour, you know, Starbucks or Amazon warehouses or these other yeah. places are generally much more attractive than working in these really dull, dirty and dangerous factories. And so, um, these these uh these business owners right like uh, maybe i'll ask you a question see maybe the, the audience will have a, a different guess yeah. too but uh so there are eight thousand six hundred hours in a year uh, how many hours do you think the typical factory in america is running oh all right eight thousand six hundred hours in a year um i'm gonna say 75 percent of that whatever that amounts to let's say six thousand hours yeah it's a, it's a good guess but uh unfortunately you're off by quite a lot that's okay. six thousand hours is usually the amount of time that they're idle uh okay they run on average about like, two thousand hours per year so flip. Uh, all right and so uh every you know uh factory all this machinery the building the air conditioners the forklifts the uh, heavy machinery everything sits idle 75 percent of the time uh, and it's not because uh it's not because they don't have you know, orders to, to fulfill. Uh, it's not because they don't have raw materials. Uh, the only reason is because they don't have labor that can come and, and man those posts for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, and that's, that's the thing that we're trying to remedy. So I learned that today I have something in common with factories. We both spend the great majority of our time idle and unproductive. Uh, this is good to know. I'm going to reference that in my next uh, in my next conversation. Um, okay, so obviously we're not talking about mega factories like the Coca-Colas and these giant fine-tuned machines pumping out millions and billions of things. We're talking about the small to medium businesses here. Is that the majority of the companies that are making up that statistic? Um, you know, the statistic applies even to the larger companies in, okay. in America. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we primarily work with uh, medium size, you know, small yeah. to medium size. Although we do have some very large yeah. uh, companies as customers as well. Uh, you know, the thing, the interesting thing is even some of these very, very large companies, they may have two or 300 plants across the U.S. Uh, each plant still operates uh, uh, kind of like a small business. You know, mm-hmm. they have their own P&L. 
They have their own management. They have their own teams and engineers and operations folks. Uh, and while there may be a certain level of uh, sophistication or familiarity with automation at the corporate level, yeah. a lot of the individual plants uh, are still, um, you know, look like they've they, they've been exactly the same for the last eighty years. We went we uh -huh. went to a factory recently. Uh, one of our customers actually they used to make they used to make parts for the Ford Model T. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, the guy who started that factory passed it down to his son, who passed it down to his son, who's Cornelius now the current um, yeah. owner, owner and operator. Mm -hmm. And when you walk into that plant, uh, I swear, you know, it's like you've been transported back a hundred years. Um, wow. That everything in there is at least eighty to hundred years old. <laughs> okay. um, and you know, it's a common situation in American manufacturing. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that, okay, so I knew you'd, you'd have a more optimistic view. Of course, that's one common trait of all of the entrepreneurs that I interview. At least they all publicly claim to have an optimistic viewpoint. It seems to be a requirement for the job of, of being an entrepreneur, at least a successful one anyways. Um, you know, when you were running that fund back at, at, at Baidu, which is obviously a big, big deal, you were also investigating the impact of AI and machine learning. And, and I saw this on on the ways that we work and live, which again ties directly in the Steve Jobs quote to what you're doing now. Um, what, what did you discover in that? Did you discover that AI would primarily be an assistant or a, a tool that we would use? Did you discover things that made you cautious or scared or apprehensive about what rampant use of AI might mean? Um, yeah, I think... Uh... AI is fundamentally not very different from the different the, the, the previous kind of technological revolutions that we've had yeah. as a society. Uh, right? I think the, the last most recent one was the internet. You know, the one yep. before that was microprocessors. The one before that, uh, um, you know, it was debatable, but kind of industrial revolution is what I what I think of as one of the big ones. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, automobiles. Right? There's all, all of these, all of these things. You know, even bicycles. Right. Uh, each of these things uh, at one time came around, right, and were were criticized as this is going to take away our humanity. This is going to take away our creativity. This is going to uh, take away jobs. Everybody's going to be sitting around twiddling their thumbs once this becomes you know commonplace. Uh, and you know, that's never happened. Right. And I think um, AI is is exactly the same. Uh, in 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 the sense that it is uh, m making us massively more productive as individuals, as organizations, yeah. um, and I think that's in general, you know, a net good for for society. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I think the big difference from AI with those previous technological revolutions is that um, there were uh, uh, revolutions that were focused around um, uh, like physical uh, improvement, right? Like the kind of you can imagine kind of made our made our muscles obsolete yeah. uh in, in a sense right but mm -hmm. uh ai is maybe more intellectual than some of the previous ones um but but you know the internet and 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 um and semiconductors and that were all you know all all contributed in a similar way uh i think ai really fundamentally is, is three things right like one is uh it's gotten a lot better at perceiving the world uh yeah. and and uh that comes from a you know, massive improvement in the quality and, and quantity of sensors that are in the world, uh, as well as things like the internet, which I think of almost as like as a sensor to, to AI. It's collecting data and then it's feeding right. it. And so, um, 
AI is allowing us to make sense of all of that data in a much, much better way, in a way that a human couldn't. The next thing that AI does is make decisions, uh, and it can make decisions uh, also uh, in a way that is a vastly higher order of magnitude than uh, what people can do, uh, right? Like, uh, let's say you're, and I'm thinking in factory terms because I've been in factories, but like, let's say you're kind of operating uh, in a, the control room of a factory, right? you can kind of look at that new information, you can make a new decision every 30 minutes, 60 minutes, right? If you're really focused on it, uh, based on new information, you can say, oh, actually, look, let's adjust the parameters in this way or that way, right? AI can do that 35,000 times per second uh, and, and not break a sweat, right? So uh, we can take all of those that, that decision-making capability uh, and, and drastically amplify it. Uh, and then the third thing is, uh, you know, to act on those decisions, right? Uh, and and uh, AI is improving our ability to do that. And so each each of those three things um, has has drastically improved. Uh, and, you know, LLMs are, are a part of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But fundamentally, again, you know, no different than the kind of previous revolution. So uh, I think I'm very, very optimistic uh, mm-hmm. by what it brings. I think there's a lot of people who talk about the kind of doomsday scenario of, AI becoming sentient and right. taking over and killing us and things like that, uh, or making humanity obsolete. I yeah. I fundamentally just don't believe in in, in those claims. Um, not because I'm kind of ideologically against it. It's just that there's zero evidence that any of that stuff is going to happen. Right? Like I think we uh, we we need to we need to uh, kind of base our fears on evidence. And uh, there's no there's zero evidence that AI becoming better at predicting the next word or writing, you know, sentences or analyzing data has any kind of equivalence to sentience, right? Like that, that line is something that people draw, but there's just no evidence for it. Yeah, it's funny because right before we had this interview, I thought about canceling the interview actually, because I asked ChatGPT 4.5 what Salman Farid would say if I interviewed him <laughs> and it predicted exactly that. That's exactly what go. it said. Oh, that'll so save thought, me some what, time next time. <laughs> what do we even need? What are we even doing here? Um, uh, but no, that's that's an interesting point. And, and um, you know, talking about fads and AI and what is a trend and what is a fad and what is the future. Uh, first of all, I have a gif of a monkey for $100,000. Would you like to buy it from me? Uh, it's called an NFT. Uh, but no, it's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people wonder whether AI is a fad or a future or automation, all of these things. Are they here to stay or is this just the, the topic du jour? There was an article that came out recently where somebody was saying that the greatest result of these types of advancements is a collective waste of our time, that bots are going to be writing all of the content, bots are going to be responding to all of the content. And then for us as humans, our future job is just going to be to filter through 90% of garbage out there, and that in the end, it's going to be largely a waste of time. I'm guessing that you probably don't wholly agree with that, but I'm curious where you stand especially yeah. in an election year, not to dive into that, but social media, misinformation, all of these topics, very interesting at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I share a lot of those fears, right? I think it would be naive or, you know, you know, to, 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 to say that people are not going to use these things for negative or nefarious yeah. purposes. Um, but, you know, I I think that the good, gal, good guys will prevail, right? I think that there's... Uh, the like a lot of these theories that you're describing, they kind of assume that one side has these tools and and everybody else is sitting on their sitting on their hands, kind of wondering what's going to happen. Like that's not true, right? Like the, w- the other side has tools too, right? Like mm. everybody who creates a spam bot 
you know, there's 10 people on the other side who will create, you know, use AI to create some kind of discrimination, you know, engine that will weed out all the tools that they don't want to see, right? Um, uh, all the all the, the tweets or blog posts or whatever that they don't want to yeah. see. Um, anybody who uh, uses AI to kind of do nefarious things on the road, you know, there's, there's going to be people on the other side that are going to make better tools that uh, that counteract that. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like every 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 technological tool in the past, there have been nefarious uses of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think humanity is still here. Humanity is thriving. And on, on the net, uh, humanity is right, using, okay. using those things in a positive way. Um, mm. And um, I don't think the answer is necessarily regulation, although I think regulation has a part to play. Mm. But uh, I think uh, the answer is, like, let's turbocharge the good guys, right? Mm. Uh, that's that's the way that we that's the way that we make sure these technologies are used in a, in a positive way that's beneficial for humanity. Makes sense. So let's talk about the switch to robotics then. So you started Formic in 2020, relatively recently, a pandemic company, I guess you could say, which is an interesting time to be launching any business, I'm sure, let alone in the physical space. Um, what led you to ultimately decide that this was the path for you with your knowledge? Why this company? Why this sector? In some sense, it seems like you know robotic automation is nothing particularly new, but you found something new here. What made you jump in, knowing what you know and with your huge background? Yeah, you know, I've worked with lots of robotics companies. I invest in a lot of robotics companies. I um, have seen the the trajectory over and over again. And um, I think while there's a lot of incredible technology that's making robots more capable, um, the thing that made me want to start Formic is I realized that the linchpin for kind of real world adoption of robotics uh, was something else. Uh, you know, the the thing that was preventing mass adoption is not that robots can't complete tasks well. Today, there's robots that can do almost anything for you, right? If you spend enough money uh, and uh, and set aside enough time and kind of define the conditions well enough, you can get a robot to change your tire. You can get a robot to paint your house. You can get a robot to um, you know fold your laundry. Like all of these things are theoretically all possible today. The thing that's preventing adoption is not the intelligence of the robot per se, it's the complexity and risk associated with doing it. Um, and it sounds like a nuanced difference, but uh, the the for most of the users of robots in the world, right now it's just completely inaccessible, right? Like mm -hmm. you can say, I want a robot that will do this thing for me, but uh, I don't know how to get there. I don't. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to cough up, and um, there's so much risk associated with it. Once I have that robot, like what if it breaks down? And now I've spent a few hundred thousand dollars, and it's and it's you know not working for me. So yeah, um, we started Formic really with the idea of of democratizing access to automation, mm. uh, and I think that there are examples of this in other contexts. But one of the ones that comes to mind is AWS, right? Where um, uh, if if the only way for Ross, for you and I to record this podcast would be that, you know, we had a server rack in our house. Yeah, right here. Uh, with, Humming away. Know, a million air conditioners pointed yes. at it. And, you know, fiber optic lines hooked up directly yep. between you and I. Yep. Like, it just wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the only way that these kinds of things are, are done is if the infrastructure is in place that makes it easy enough for us. Uh, and um, I think the same same applies to robotics. Is that uh, you know the if if each factory owner or each you know construction site manager or each uh, you know shopkeeper had to figure out a way 
to get robots working for their facility, uh, like it's just completely inaccessible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what Formic uh, figured out is that uh, we can build a bunch of technology tools and software tools that makes it much easier uh, to deploy and adopt uh, automation. But more importantly, we can also take on a lot of the responsibility that would historically have gone on the end customer. And so we take on you know, end-to-end deployment responsibility for performance of those systems. Uh, we commit to, you know, for example, you need five boxes per minute placed over here. Uh, we will place five boxes per minute. Uh, and if we don't, we're in violation of our contract. Right? So uh, these are all things that we can start to put in place uh, that really drive up adoption. And, we'll, and we've seen you know, the results of, have spoken. We, ha- we have uh, uh, you know, hundreds of robots deployed now, uh, uh, all of which you know, the, the, the factories have told us, you know, I've, I've been wanting to automate for the last 10 years, but I've never had a, a, a viable path to doing it. Uh, and so, so uh, it's very, very fulfilling for us to see the impact that, that these robots are having for our customers. That's awesome. So let's imagine that I'm a factory worker and I make uh, bottles of water and I put right on the bottle of water that each cap is individually hand screwed onto the bottle. Um, and I enjoy, you know, whoops, whipping my workers as they uh, get arthritis in their hands. Um, how would you convince me to, to switch? and to put those people to use elsewhere? Um, the, uh, the main thing is um, when we talk to these factories, um, they don't need a lot of convincing. Uh, I think that these factories are generally you know, acutely aware of the problem. Uh, right? they, this, you know, 20 to 30% per month headcount turnover right. uh, is by itself you know, a massive, right. uh, massive issue. And so Every month, you know, often multiple times a week, you know, they'll, they'll start the shift and they'll say, oh, look, you know, so-and-so didn't show up. Looks like we have to figure out a way to run without him. Uh, right? And so they'll kind of cut off other non-critical tasks and, and send people here. Uh, and that's really, really a difficult, um, uh, a difficult position to be in if you're trying to run a 24-7 production facility. Uh, and so um, we show up and we say, look, you know, we can help fill a few of your empty headcount for you. Uh, it reduces your need uh, to have this turnover. Let's figure out some of the positions that you're you're currently have the highest turnover in because those are clearly the, the hardest and the most difficult jobs. Yeah. Uh, and then um, they can reallocate the labor to other other tasks. Um, so uh, it's generally you know very straightforward for for a lot of these manufacturers. Mm. So have they, have they been able to dramatically switch? Has any of your success stories gone from two thousand some hours to? a massive increase in uptime after making this switch? Yeah. Uh, many of them have gone, uh, you know, from, from one shift a day to two shifts a day or even three shifts a day, which, you know, roughly it's 2000 hours, 4,000 hours, 6,000 hours is 6,000 yeah. hours is three shifts a day for 200 days a year, which is pretty common. Um, mm. So uh, in, in that context, um, you know, if they double, if, if they go from one shift a day to two shifts a day, Basically, they can take some of the labor and run a run a second shift. Um, they now are producing double the out, output of that factory. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, uh, the bottom line of these factories goes up about ten or twenty x uh, because uh, all, like we were saying earlier, all the fixed costs are already paid for in that first shift. Right? You've already paid for the facility and the forklift and the air conditioners and all that stuff. Now you're doubling the, the production of that facility. So uh, it has a massive, massive impact on the viability and productivity of these factories. 
That's fantastic. So you've obviously garnered a number of awards. Do these awards mean much to you? Is it a validation of sorts? Do you care at all when somebody honors you like Fast Company? Uh, I mean, of course, it's always satisfying to, uh, you know, I think the uh, the curse of every entrepreneur, uh, you know, on the one hand, like you said, I think it's it's common to be overly optimistic and and feel like everything is easier than you than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the flip side is also true, which is super self-critical, right? And I think yeah. it's very, very common to say, you know, oh, is this all in vain? You know, we're all, we're failing, nothing's working, here are all the problems. Yeah. Uh, and I think the curse of every entrepreneur is that you, you always see the problems uh, yeah. uh, because that's what drives you to, to do something about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, seeing, getting, getting recognition is sometimes a chance to step away from that for a second and say, okay, you know, yes, here are all the other 10 things that we're not doing perfectly, but, uh, we did accomplish something, uh, and that's something to be proud of. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we don't depend on, on them, uh, for, for motivation, but it's a nice, nice reprieve from the kind of inner dialogue. That may, speaking of inner dialogue, I've always been fascinated about this. Are you the type of person that you hit your pillow and you're fast asleep? every night and you sleep like a baby for eight hours or does that inner dialogue continue all night every night uh i have a uh, i have a two-year-old uh and a oh, one-year-old congratulations. oh my god so, no you have a two-year-old uh, oh lord yeah so sleep is not really Ooh. on the menu <laughs> no oh um, man i have a five-year-old and a baby on the way so i oh, i can imagine your pain uh, yeah <laughs> it's uh um no i mean you know i i i i I truthfully, I don't sleep that much. Um, Obviously, and uh, it's it's not primarily because of the kids. Uh, and I think uh, I blame them, but really, uh, I'm often just up at night thinking about things. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. I, I think that there isn't much that I'm actually envious of of anybody in this world, but that is definitely one. I have a best friend, and he's like, as soon as I hit the pillow, I'm out for as many hours as I have. He's just down, and I think, what a gift that would be. Because, you know, even, like, I'm right about to fall asleep and, like, right as I do it, it's like, hey, your dad had cancer when you were 17 years old. That was 20 years ago. How old are you? How old was he then? How many years do you have? Like, it's like, fucking brain, shut up, man. Like, stop it. Like, I don't need to hear this at midnight. Like, right about to fall asleep. And you think, like, if this contract fails, then something, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would give anything for that superpower, and I'm like you. I use like my kid is just a justification. I can blame it on her. I can say, "Oh, it's her fault," but it would have happened anyways. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, sometimes the brain tra- plays tricks on you. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, there are things that help. I've, I've uh, exercise helps, and right. Uh, yeah, I think that's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing. Yeah, exactly. You got to get those steps, the ten thousand steps, or whatever they say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for people who, you know, these are all very sexy topics, robotics, AI, machine learning, very trendy, of course. And for people who have an interest, but who haven't yet built a career out of it, as you did when you were a child, what are some of the steps that you took to build a career and to get started? And how would you advise somebody get started in this day and age um, if they don't know where to begin? I think it depends a lot on what, you know, what you're trying to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, AI is playing such a huge part in um, the way we're going to live our lives in the mm. next 20, 30 years that I think uh, it's really important for every young person to be very, very familiar with what it's capable of and, and how it's changing and how it's evolving. Um, you know, I think uh, while there is a lot of hype surrounding it, uh, it's important to remember that we're still in the very, very early 
innings yeah. of uh, AI, both the technology around AI being built and the applications of AI uh, being kind of put to use. And I think that there's um, like millions uh, of, of, of things that you can do with it that are that currently you know, nobody's even scratching the surface for. So um, one thing that I, I told my, my young nephew recently, he's you know, 18, is, uh, you know, there's very few things in the world that you can really quickly become a world expert in. Uh, And AI is one of those things because, you know, the whole field has been in existence for a few years only, right? Like, especially kind of around deep learning, uh, large Mm -hmm. language models, the applications of all that large language models, you know, all less than a a couple of years old. And so the most experienced person in the world on this topic has one year of experience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, um, you know, if you're, if you're hungry and aggressive and uh, willing to learn, I think there's a lot there's a lot to be done uh, to kind of use these technologies in, in really interesting ways. So um, I'm, uh, I, I think kind of this current generation has a, has a lot of opportunity ahead of it mm. to build incredibly uh, interesting things. Um, and at the same time, I think the kind of plurality and diversity of the world is increasing a lot. And so Absolutely. Uh, our communities, our societies, uh, the way that we live our lives as individuals, as families, like it's all changing. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, young people, more than most, uh, have an, an optimism and a willingness, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a kind of real sense of justice uh, and want to use these technologies and tools for the betterment of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, that passion, and that desire is, is so well placed with, with young people. Right? As, as we get older, we become skeptical, we become fixed yeah. in our ways we become uh the pressures of reality habit. sink in yeah or or you know, or even worse we look back and think the past was better somehow right and yep. so we're like oh yeah, yeah I, you know i wish i could go back to what the world was like 20 years ago and like that's yeah. i don't think that's a, a kind of very healthy outlook so you know i think the the, the yeah. it's so great to see young people have this optimism and this sense of uh uh of like uh, excitement about changing the world for the better um and i think that you know the the more tools they have, the better the future will be. No kidding. And I personally wish that Pogs and Tamagotchis were still popular. That's the world I'm living in, but (laughs) stuck with AI, unfortunately (laughs) stuck with iPhones and AI and cameras. Um, For us. That's a great way, great way to, to put it. And I was actually coincidentally enough thinking about that last (laughs) night at three in the morning. Um, I was thinking about how these trends come and go and, and what you described is, is literally a a thought that I had about how you can sort of sense these trends by when you can all develop a skill at the same time. And there are certain waves of that, like take Bill Gates, uh, you know, working with computers, tinkering in his high school lab, he was the foremost expert in computers at that time by simply trying to code something on a computer in a time when very few people were even attempting to do that. So you got a kid who ends up becoming, you know, the, the pioneer founder of, of Microsoft, right? As these trends come and go and all the ones you've described, there is at that moment right at the beginning of a wave where somebody has the ability to not necessarily be an expert, but to be an expert relative to the rest of the world. And therefore their personal growth and knowledge can mimic 
the trend as it happens. And this is true. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of dance music, for example. And electronic music was sort of, uh, you know, 20 years ago, sort of the same kind of thing. Or 30 years ago, there were a few people who weren't very good as producers by today's standards. But at that time, they were the best of who was around. And then they all grew together and they became the legends of that space. So I think it's a very interesting thought that one might always want to seek out opportunities where they have the, the, the position where they could be that expert or on par with somebody else and grow together into an industry versus seeking out a zone where it's well entrenched and everybody's already established themselves and it'd be very hard to grow along with something. Do you think that's just generally good life advice? Um, I think that the rate of change is always increasing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think there's, you know, you look at all of these curves of the kind of history of humanity uh, and then kind of suddenly, you know, they look kind of exponential and they, they go vertical for, for one reason or another. And I think um, humanity is, is as a collective kind of reaching new, new, new heights uh, and, and new levels of, of maturity and new levels of societal organization and new levels of awareness. And uh, I think all of those things mean that um, for the individual young person, right? Like, the number of opportunities is always increasing. Uh, and so while, you know, in the time of Bill Gates, there was, you know, maybe one technological revolution or two, you know, maybe a few other things in parallel that, that he could have been a part of. Uh, I think today uh, there are hundreds of technological revolutions happening at the same time. Um, and uh, if you fast forward, you know, 50 years, there's probably going to be a thousand, right? Like, and I, yeah. and so yeah. e each of these fields will produce, not just great companies, but, you know, individuals with a lot of expertise, uh, uh, really, really hopefully beneficial, ben you know, benefits for society. Uh, and so I think in general, the human civilization is marching forward. Uh, and uh, the number of, you know, interconnected dots is increasing really quickly. Like, mm. another thing that I think about often, you know, three in the morning thoughts is, you know, the, the collective, um, uh, like knowledge of human civilization so far um, is really being advanced by probably, you know, there's, let's say, you know, 500 universities in the world and, you know, 5,000 people at each of those universities. Like that's the group of people that is on behalf of all of civilization breaking frontiers in new science and, and, and literature and poetry and all these different mm -hmm. things. I mean, obviously the rest of society is doing a lot of incredible work as well, but, but when it comes to like the boundaries of physics or the boundaries of computer science, right? Like yeah. there's, there's, there's this, this kind of actually like a very small set of people that is advancing human civilization. And uh, the thing that I, I get excited about thinking about is, you know, what happens when we have, you know, let's say not all 7 billion humans, but let's say half of them, 3 billion humans, right? Uh, applying their, their, their capability and knowledge and, and uh, you know, uh, kind of creativity to advancing uh, uh, the, the state of human knowledge. And so I, I think that like we haven't even tapped, you know, 1% of 1% of the potential uh, of, of the human kind of collective human mind and spirit and, and kind of innovation. Uh, and so like, you know, there's, 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 there's so much ahead. Well, that's a, a fascinating and refreshing perspective. And I think much needed in these, what some would call scary times, um, or, you know, exciting times again, as I guess it's choose how glass half full glass, half empty kind of thing. Um, 
So for you personally with Formic for the next five years, what would outrageous success be? And what are you hoping to get? And, and on a broader scale, you know, 10 years, what would you hope from the line of work in general? What would you like to see? Yeah, I think for Formic, um, success looks like every factory being able to run 8,000 hours a year. All right, <laughs> okay. so being able to kind of instantly snap your fingers and have uh, uh, unlimited workforce available for every every yeah. every factory in America, um, and 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 soon afterwards, you know, other fields outside of manufacturing as well. So, uh, for us to be able to get there, we need to make robots a lot cheaper. We need to make them a lot easier to deploy. We need them make them a lot more flexible to do like many different tasks, um, and uh, we need to build all the infrastructure to support those robots once they're in all of those places. So. Uh, that requires, um, you know, we're just kind of chipping away at, at what's a very, very big problem. Um, but um, I think that the the impact would be that, you know, the, we would be able to uh, massively unlock the potential of production and, and as a result, um, uh, unlock the kind of abundance for, for, for humanity, right? Like I would want you to be able to go to a grocery. Yeah. Like I, I think uh, whenever I see the inflation numbers go up, uh, I, I I feel like okay, you know, like this is something we have we have to do something about this, right? And I think the yeah. the, the, yeah. the biggest counterinflationary force is is technology. Right? If we can make mm. uh, the cost of goods cheaper uh, by making them more efficient to produce, uh, that will immediately impact you know the, the price of you know cereal in a in a grocery store, uh, and uh, that's the way that we counter inflation. Uh, and I think monetary policy and things like that are are not anything I can do anything about. Uh, but uh, uh, when it comes to making products easier and cheaper to produce, like I can do something about that. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's our focus right now. That's awesome. Well, I think there's a lot of people who would love to see it, um, myself included. Last little bit of wild speculation before we jump off here. Um, UBI, is that something that you see happening? Is that something that you see will be necessary or good? Or is that just something that people are wrong about um you know i have i have some opinions but yeah. but the thing that i'll say is that i don't think um my opinion on this topic should matter mm. uh and what i mean by that is you know i think that there's a lot of people in the technology industry who uh like once they've built some kind of technology you know feel like they can kind of dictate how the world should function and like there are people right. who are much more knowledgeable at me around things around kind of Kind of macroeconomics, uh, you know, sociology, you know, how society should function, uh, systems of governance. Like, I, frankly, I, just, I haven't studied those things. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about them. Um, and uh, I think that I would have a lot to, a lot of work to do before I would have an informed opinion on that topic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that something as 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 technologists, we need to kind of reflect on, and recognize is that just because I know how to make robots work. <laughs> it doesn't mean I know how to dictate social policy. Uh, and just because somebody knows how to make AI you know, work, it doesn't mean that they know how to uh, dictate social policy. And I think like, it, it's a, you, or, or you know, even things like education, right? Like, you know, like, anyway, I think that there's, there's a lot of things around how, how society should function that are really, really important questions that deserve a lot of thought. Um, and um, I, just, I don't know if my, my, my experience translates. Uh, but okay. yeah, I mean, I have my instinct about whether UBI is good or not, but again, like I, okay, well, I, how about this? Will it happen or not? 
Just guess. 50-50. Is that something that we're going to head towards or no? Wild guess. I think I think there's a like from what I've read, there's a lot of research that shows that strong social safety nets are mm. good for people uh, and are good for societies and civilizations. Um, and I think that you know there shouldn't like I I don't think that there should be people you know starving on the street or um, uh, you know like you know unable to pay their medical bills or un- yeah. unable to pay for their children's education. I don't I think as a society we can do better than that. Yeah. Um, uh, that's my baseline. How exactly we we get there and how we build that social safety net, I, I don't exactly know like what the best mm. mechanisms are. But you may, be, might be one of the answers. Fair enough. And we both live in locations where we are confronted with that uh, on a daily basis. Me in the L.A. area, you up in the Bay Area, where you can see the extremes in terms of poverty and in terms of lack of access to these important things but i won't press you on it i was just curious i'm not this is no not, i mean yeah I mean, i'm, I'm I going think, back yeah, to like, the board he gave yeah the, no, I, think, I think every i mean i um, think any any sane person would look at, at that situation and and feel like something's not right right, right. Like it, I, again like, i don't know what the what the method is it's, it's uh, hard yeah it's not these are not right? easy problems yeah yeah but but like we all know that there's something wrong here yeah absolutely absolutely well, um, as we wrap things up here, uh, again, you've been very generous with your time. I can't thank you enough. Um, what is a piece of parting wisdom or is there something, you know, this is the old Peter Thiel chestnut, but is there something that you believe very strongly that the rest of the world generally doesn't believe? Is there a piece of advice that goes against the mainstream grain? There's probably a lot of, a lot of things in that, in that bucket, but I think the one, the, the one that maybe is most relevant in the context is um, I've learned the hard way to uh like, don't really take people's advice <laughs> uh i think all right i'm uh, out of here see you later <laughs> uh what i've learned is that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who will give you advice uh, mm-hmm. as if they know the answer uh mm-hmm. and i think when you're young or kind of in the beginning of your career it's like easy to be like oh like you know so and so is so knowledgeable or they've, they've seen success or they've done this and that uh and like they probably can can be helpful to me um and uh, it, it's I realized over and over and over again that probably 99% of the advice that I got uh, was wrong. <laughs> uh, and when I talk to others, you know, I think people have a very similar similar sentiment. So uh, if I had one controversial piece of opinion, it's just like, you know, you can ask for people's advice to hear what they think, but don't take their advice. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Advising. I mean, that that's a paradox in and of itself. I think Schrodinger's cat just exploded somewhere. Uh, <laughs> say, here's one piece of advice. Don't take advice. Um, no, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And I share your vision. I hope that all of the people twisting bottle caps and lifting heavy bricks and bake, breaking their back on a daily basis, you know, may that too be relegated to the past at some point in a human future. It would be amazing if we as people no longer had to do that. And if people could, you know, use all of their brain. So I think it's a very noble pursuit. And again, you have really contributed a lot to these fields and you're still contributing and you're really at the forefront of this, at least in my eyes. So it's very valuable to get your perspective on this stuff. So again, thank you so much, uh, Salman. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and they can find out the website. It's a formic, F-O-R-M-I-C dot C-O, right? That's right. Check you out there. Any other place where they might be able to, um, to follow along or anything you want to promote? Um, yeah, I think our website, our, you can check out our you know, GoFormic Twitter um, or X. Um, but yeah, if you know any factories that are struggling to hire labor, give us a call.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ross, for having us. Uh, Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, This was a lot of fun. It was absolutely my pleasure. And with that, the uh, podcast is over. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Meet the Open Path podcast. I really appreciate that you either made it all the way to the end or you just left it playing and wandered into another room. Either way, the episode's over. And this is that rare moment before the next episode autoplays where I can get you just for a second and tell you, you know what? There's a lot of gold in past episodes. Go back there. Just because it's old don't mean it ain't gold. And a lot of these people are some of the great influencers and movers and shakers of our time. People have achieved incredible things. So deep dive into that back catalog. Share any of the episodes or share the show itself with somebody you care about or worse yet share it with somebody you don't care about as a way to bore them to tears for another hour of their life whatever you do i would just greatly appreciate it if you supported the show thanks for listening and i'll see you next week on the beat the Alvin path podcast